That's what I think a lot of my choices have to do with learning and hope, I think. I've been thinking about hope quite a lot, especially in terms of Asian identity. A lot of it is about anger and hope together. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Bosom. I'm Lucy Hicks-Beach and this is a podcast where I want to find out how women, non-binary and gender non-conforming people have influenced and shaped our thoughts and lives. In a world where women's contributions are often disregarded, I want to learn more about how and how much they have impacted the people we are and the society we live in. To do this, I am talking to guests about how people of marginalised genders have influenced their lives, identities and understandings of the world. Today, I'm speaking to writer and performer Zelda Solomon, who, when you listen to this, will have just finished her degree in History of Art at Edinburgh. Zelda is the co-founder of Sexy Asians in Your Area, a theatre company and social media platform that focuses on anti-racism and the celebration of Asian art, culture and identity. After COVID stopped them performing at Fringe last year, they created a short film for all-Asian theatre showcase, Rumorfest, which I would thoroughly recommend everybody checks out. Hello, Zelda. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to Bosom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for coming on. It's so nice that you managed to fit me into your busy schedule of finishing your degree. Anything for you, Lucy? (laughs) (laughs) That's so nice. So the premise of this podcast is I've asked you to pick five women, non-binary or gender non-conforming figures in your life that have somehow influenced you. How did you go about choosing them? Well, some of them I thought were quite obvious to me, like hands down, no hesitation, didn't have Mm -hmm. to even think about it. But then when I first read like childhood's icon, I found that a bit difficult because all my icons, I think, were men because I fancied them. (laughs) And like, that was what was on my mind, clearly, that and Katniss, and that was like it. And then... (laughs) Fair enough. I had some fun. I didn't really, I didn't have one person in mind for some of them, and it was really fun to remember someone and then think about how impactful they were to me and like the world and stuff. And that that was fun. I enjoyed doing it, but it was harder than I thought it would be. Mm, I think a lot of people have said that. I don't know if you found this, but when I was coming to the end of uni, I was feeling very reflective about how I'd changed or like my sense of self had changed. Do you think that you, at this stage of your life, you can look back and think about how your idea of being a woman or your like relationship to gender, do you think you're able to like look back and think about how that's changed at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what me and Camilla, when we were doing Sexy Asians, talked a lot about. It was how, for us, gender identity and racial identity come together. And that was not something that I ever really, like, processed or had time to stop and think about it when I was at school. Mm. And that's definitely something that's happened at uni. And since then, it's been a lot easier to kind of look back and draw things out and see things with, like, more hindsight and clarity of what was actually happening so it was just it's just yeah I suppose also the being at the end of uni is just so existential and horrible 
I find it weird thinking about all the different times when you're about to start a new stage and thinking about what your ideas were at the time and how now you're going on to your next stage, how that previous few years at school or uni have really changed your like, understanding of the world and yourself and yeah. things like that. That's what I think a lot of my choices have to do with learning and hope, I think. I've been thinking about hope quite a lot, especially in terms of Asian identity. A lot of it is about anger and hope together. Yeah. And those are things that I kind of identify identified a lot on the people I chose Mm. even from people that I didn't expect I would get that from I'm Mm. seeing it now you really get that sense from the Instagram page for sexy Asians you kind of get that sense of positivity and frustration it feels like a community page that has that like nuanced experience yeah that was that's really nice that you said that thank you because that was one of the big aims when we were making Sexy Asians was to give service to the complexity of Asian identity because so much of the representation is so one-dimensional, two-dimensional at best. And like, yeah. and to make something that's complicated and doesn't have simple answers or simple feelings, exactly when things are sexy and turn in cheek, but also really cross and angry at the world was something that we really wanted to do. That definitely came across. You got that. It was just like this really joyful thing to watch. That's so nice. The Instagram as well. There's this great kind of mix of stuff that's really, really funny. And I think the show, the film was really, really funny, but also really informative is such an annoying word because it's like it wasn't a lesson it wasn't like a school lesson that you were teaching but it was (laughs) yeah just very complex and didn't give you straight answers but gave you kind of ideas to consider yeah thank you that was what we really wanted to do that's really nice (laughs) so we're gonna start looking at your figures and the first person i would love to talk to you about is a childhood or teenage icon and you have chosen Lucy Liu but specifically Lucy Liu in Kill Bill. I used to love Kill Bill I honestly don't even remember if she was a villain or not I think everyone was kind of they were killing each other it's yeah. in the name but she was such a badass and Lucy Liu is just so amazing and so beautiful so she's in this big boardroom I'm getting so excited because I love this scene <laughs> And she's with all these Japanese businessmen. And one of them is pissed at her. It's all, this beginning part's all in Japanese. And she's like, what are you saying? Say it to my face. What's, what's, what's your deal? <laughs> and he's like, flips. And he basically calls her a half-breed because they're all Japanese and she's Chinese, American, Japanese. Mm-hmm. Lucy Liu's character. And so... He is kind of giving her some grief about it. He calls her a half-breed. And Lucy Liu hops on the board table and runs down the table and just cuts his head off. (laughs) And then there's, like, blood everywhere. And she delivers this amazing speech afterwards that I was obsessed with. And she starts off by saying, No subject will ever be too taboo. You can talk to me about anything as your leader. I'm, I'm totally here for it, paraphrased by me. And then she but then she goes on to just like stone cold. She's got blood splattered on her from this guy's head. And she says, the price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect your fucking head. And she pulls his head up and goes, just like this fucker here. <laughs> now, if any of you sons of bitches have anything else to say, now's the fucking time. <laughs> and it was 
so amazing. And it's on Spotify and I used to listen to it on my way to my exams, to my English lessons, whenever I, I just loved that scene. And I just thought it was so badass and incredible and just an iconic moment. But then looking back, it embodied to me the anger and the pushback of just being given grief for something that you can't help. And I didn't really realise that that was happening at the time, but it's so obvious because I really liked listening to that scene, especially at a time when people started really asking me questions about where I'm from, which because my mum is, she's biracial, she's Japanese-American, but she grew up in Japan and then moved. And my dad is Jewish-American. And I was just very confused growing up with where I was from because also my dad's Jewish and my mum is not Jewish. So that's already kind of confusing from a Jewish identity perspective. And, yeah. But it's not just that we're not practising. Like my dad was bar mitzvahed and he grew up, but he's not practising anymore. And my mum grew up speaking Japanese and she doesn't speak it anymore. So mm. I kind of got a lot of things secondhand. And it was also a time when everyone was just really asking where I was from and if I speak Japanese, if I've ever lived there, I've ever been there. And the answer was no. And they also, some people thought I just didn't look Asian at all. And some people thought I definitely did. It was very confusing because some people would like tell me off if I said I was Asian, not Asian people would be like, you're not Asian, you can't say you're Asian. And then other people be like, where are you from? Where are you really from? So it was very confusing. I felt like I couldn't win, didn't really know what to say. And so just Lucy Liu just cutting this guy's head off, being like, bossin. <laughs> just bossin, like, sharp. And that was just such a perfect little badass embodiment of all the anger that I had that I don't think I really felt like I was allowed to share at the time. Because I was trying to be calm and educate people. And also, like, protect myself by being very matter-of-fact and gentle and explaining things. I can imagine that it, it could be an outlet through somebody else. To, yeah. Like, to be able to see that anger that you didn't feel like you could exercise yourself. Yeah, it was like a fantasy. It yeah. was like, that was exactly... To just get up on the table and run across but- and cut his head <laughs> off and being like, that's an example, don't ever do that shit again. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading this article that she wrote quite recently, I think. And she was talking about, again, like kind of what you were saying, this not being able to exist in multiple boxes without being questioned. So she was talking about either being, I think the phrase that she used was either being a lotus flower or a dragon lady. I think this is something that's been coming up a lot in different ways as I've spoken to people. So understanding the fact that you can identifying with being Japanese and being Jewish or being um so I was talking to Sophie Cambridge and she's being a sportswoman and being disabled but other people find it so tricky to let that all be one identity mm-hmm. and this is what I, Lucy Liu was talking about in her articles that she couldn't it wasn't her that felt she was not able to fit into all those things and be one person it was other people were like like you said that you're Jewish but you said that you're Japanese and I don't know, I'm just really fascinated by this, being able to have really like fluid identities in your understanding of yourself 
And I thought Lucy Liu just articulated that really well. Even within her own Asian identity, she's forced to either be a dragon lady or a lotus flower. She yeah. can't just be this... Lucy Liu? She can't, just, she can't just be Lucy Liu. She's got to be one of the other. No, that's like... Especially those two binaries have come up a lot in the type of research that I've been doing in a lot of different ways. A, a lot mm. because hybridity is so central to any kind of diaspora community, but I think it has a really unique relationship with Asian diaspora, especially in America. Mm. A lot to do with the model minority and the circumstances under which Asian people were allowed to assimilate into America, which was you had to be well-educated and you had to be like super, super the bestest, bestest, bestest immigrant ever. Yeah. And then you can come, maybe. And so... Okay, this has had really flowed on very well, but you have to let me ramble because it's yeah. like all I all I think about is what exactly what you just said. Is the lotus flower dragon lady binary is super interesting because it's really revealing as to what we conceptualize the roles for Asian women to be in Western society, which is to say either like the Madame Butterfly character, which is like a lotus flower, helpless, babyish type of woman that needs saving normally mm-hmm. yeah. and is very innocent. And then there's the dragon lady, which is the devious, th- sexually aggressive woman. And I was reading some really interesting theories on that, how, and especially like th- mediated through film, that the lotus flower is a gendered version of the model minority, which is like a mm. assimilated and complacent Asian immigrant, while the dragon lady is a gendered form of yellow peril, mm. which is the threat to take over. And especially in film and stuff like that, you see a lot of explicit threats to take over white men. And so that's this really complicated and messy dynamic between Asian women historically being seen as sex objects mm. that are both so stupid and harmless and innocent so they could never do anything and then this at the flip of the switch becomes this dark sexually aggressive character yeah and the theory the theories that i was looking into kind of for personal reasons is that having mixed heritage children complicates that binary Mm. because it pushes pushes the child especially in my context a a woman cis woman further towards self as kind of the other gets more diluted or more complicated, then it gets even harder to try to push Asian women into either those two binaries. Because that's all that people kind of tend to be comfortable with seeing Asian representation as, as one of those two things. This leads on appropriately to talking about your second figure, who is somebody that is no longer alive, and you have picked Anna May Wong, who was an actor in the yeah. mid-20th century. That's- yeah, Anna May Wong, what a crazy story and a crazy life. She was born in Chinatown in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. she's Chinese-American. And she started being in films when she was 14, and she's considered the first Asian-American Hollywood star. And she was in films like in the 20s and 30s, and she was really popular. I kind of knew who she was because everyone talks about the film she's in as the beginning of these very narrow spaces for Asian people and Asian women in cinema. And I thought, oh, 20s was so long ago. I, I don't know. Maybe she liked it. <laughs> and then I was looking up what she, how she was responding to it at the time. And she was so outspoken towards the end. She was saying blatantly, these roles are ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense why you, why you keep casting me in these horrible, simplified roles where mm-hmm. she's always the villain. She started off doing Madame Butterfly type of character, the Lotus Flower, and then she was in... I can't remember what it was called. Then she was a sexy slave in, in one film. 
and that like exploded because she was just wearing a bikini and then from then on just sexy figures the one that i was looking at was Daughter of the Dragon, where she played what is now like the archetypical dragon lady of the devious, prostitute, scheming, sexy, horrible Asian woman. Yeah. And she said that that was horrible. Like later on, she's like, what a wicked role. The thing that really made me like take a moment was that there was a film called The Good Earth in 1937 and they wanted her to come in to play the concubine role and she said I'll come and do the test but I don't want this part. She wants the lead role. She'd never played the lead role which is again a trend that is absolutely still happening um, with Asian actors and actresses. But even so this was a Asian specific film. It was I think it was based on a book and all the characters were were supposed to be Asian people. And she was called in not to be the lead actress, but to be the concubine. And she said, you're asking me to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture, featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters. And they didn't let her have the main role. She didn't get that part. She refused it. And they gave the lead to a German actress who played Olan, the protagonist, in, like, Yellow Face. And she won an Oscar for Best Actress. No. Yeah. Yeah, I read a really similar thing. I think it was a film called Crimson City, where she was playing a supporting role and the main woman was white playing a Chinese role and she was asked to teach the lead actress how to use chopsticks. Yeah, it's wild. And the the crazy thing with that is that people really liked her. She was so famous. Like, she was Mm. really famous. And it it was more, I think it's clear, it was something like that when she's famous and she's asking for a lead role in what should be an all-Asian cast. And they're denied it. And they wanted the like veneer and the appeal of Asian stories and people, but without Asian people behind it. Which is just what crazy logic. It's such bizarre logic. And like another one of the people you used to speak about, Gia Tolentino, she's she talks about in this interview I was reading, she's saying people are really hungry for the perspectives of women of colour. They don't actually necessarily want the women of colour there. Yeah. They just they want the content without the without like the context and the people. Yeah. And that's, I think, has taken on a weird shape now when people are very keen to be allies and to learn about things. But I think there is something about feeling uncomfortable, conceding power. I I Mm. think a lot of it is to do with with power. But I feel like I have a lot of insecurity on that part because I'm aware I write on a lot of things surrounding Asian-ness or Asian representation. And I know that I've only experienced a sliver of what there is out there. And so I try to use that in of that people wanting to hear from someone who's not like them. But that's what I always, that's what I used to always try to do is I would just weasel in and I would know that people, predominantly white people, who would be too scared to say something to a person of colour that was, you know, 100% Asian. They didn't feel like they had to, you know, guard anything. That They felt kind of comfortable asking me questions and probing me because I was close enough to them. But they also knew that I had this kind of knowledge that they didn't have. Mm. Because try to use that weird kind of standpoint to engage and have conversations with people. But it's odd. <laughs> there's, there's also, I was reading about um, anime Wong, that she faced a lot of criticism from people in China about the roles that she was playing. And kind of yeah going back a bit to what you were saying about like that Lucy Liu speech she was stuck in this position of only being offered these roles but understandably people who she was playing the stereotype of were upset by these roles but they were directing their anger at her 
And she ended up in this just really tricky, like, lose-lose situation. But if she wanted to continue her career, she just was having to take these roles. But at the same time, she ended up as the focus of a lot of the like outrage at this as well. Yeah, again, just like kind of interesting how she seemed to just from every angle, she was either criticised or demonised. That's why it's so important to look back at Adam May Wong and figures like that, or things that are happening now. And exactly like as you're saying, not blame the person for what they were kind of forced into playing but interrogate the systems that were challenged by that person. Mm. How do you navigate an industry that is so demeaning? Exactly, that wants you to demean yourself. It's so obvious sometimes who it's actually for. It's not for those people of mm. you know, that it was taken from. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, I think that's a really concise way of phrasing that, working out who it's for. I feel like I could have this conversation for ages, but we've got to move on. Let's let's. Another great woman who is a fictional character and you have picked... Have you picked film Katniss Everdeen or book Katniss Everdeen? Or I'm going to say both because okay. I was happy with the film adaptation of Katniss. But okay. I was obviously book Katniss first. But rewinds. Rewinds. Katniss. Only Hunger Games, Suzanne Collins, genius. Only book I ever really got into, got into my head when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I was... It had everything. It had everything. <laughs> it was about, again, it was about power. It was about finding yourself. It was about letting people in as a strong, independent <laughs> woman. It was about taking on responsibility. It was about love. It was about learning to be sensitive as a positive thing. And my, I've, I've read, I'm such a fan. I have the pin on my coat. I went to go see the, the movie with my best friends and I bring it up with her all the time that I said we were all going to dress up and no one else dressed up. <laughs> <laughs> it was just me with my long plaid and my dad's brown leather jacket. Oh my God. Humiliated. Big but... George Nicholson is a, um, George Nicholson is a stuffed olive vibes. Oh yeah. I thought you were going to be pineapple and cheese. <laughs> I have also recently read her new book. I don't know if you're aware that um, she came out with a prequel <laughs> last summer. So, Katniss, she was just incredible. She was just incredible. I, and I have also, there's a lot of debate I have seen online, which I was frankly really disappointed and hurt to see, mm-hmm. was that people said that she's not a feminist icon, which obviously, shocking, painful. Yeah, hurtful. And that she just was broken down by the men in her life. And then she just ended up being like a happy housewife and mother to which I say incorrect on every single account. Tell us why, please. It's because she is a guarded, strong woman that has more power than she knows what to do with. And she rises to the occasion every time. But because of that, she's had to be so strong and not let anyone in. When I was reading books when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, probably even embarrassingly later, I would become like obsessed with these book characters and really mm. consciously try to basically become them, which I think to my parents' joy were mostly Jacqueline Wilson characters, so it was a lot of angry preteens. But <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think you consciously took on any of those aspects, or do you think there was more of a subtle influence on you? Because I would say lots of those qualities exist in the Zelda Solomon that I see before me. <laughs> 
that is literally I could cry that is the nicest <laughs> thing you could ever say to me and it's actually pretty crazy because if there were to be a remake Katniss this is not related to what you're saying at all okay. but if there was to be a remake I think Katniss should be Asian or biracial because in I've never thought about it before but within this context so much about Katniss is exactly what you were saying before it's about hybridity and it's about trying to be a leader and also just wanting to protect her family and wanting to be loved and also not being able to accept love and being thrust into a new scary environment maybe the west and she's having to <laughs> having to fight for her life it is in so many ways a kind of amazing first generation story but that's for a different time i think i did, i get i got more obsessed with things when i was to answer your actual question i got more obsessed with things when i was a bit younger like by the time the films came out when i would have gotten more obsessed with Katniss I was a little bit too old mm. I did obviously I was too old to be dressing up to go to the cinema but I did it anyway good I actually never read the books which is pretty shocking they are good they are um, good I don't know why I missed them I, I don't know I just wasn't cool enough for anything that had any action in it it is it was pretty it was a pretty complex story I don't <laughs> want to patronize you but there was a lot happening there was a lot of politics oh my goodness President Coyne was kind of a socialist dictator and President Snow was, he was an actual dictator. Mm. So do you think that we could actually conclude that <laughs> the Hunger Games gave you the foundations for your political understandings of the world? I actually, I genuinely don't think that would be a stretch. I think the <laughs> Hunger Games taught me about that corruption is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you have to be on your guard and things will be tough, but you will triumph. And love is love. <laughs> I feel like if I say any more on her, I just will undo the poetry that you've just given her. Thank you, Fatsalda. <laughs> We're going to move on to your fourth figure now. Your fourth person of influence. And it's somebody you've never met. And you've picked writer Gia Tolentino. So Gia Tolentino was, like, the first writer that I was really inspired by. And she was a writer for The New Yorker. And I really liked the type of subject matter and her tone. And I had just seen like bits and pieces of her stuff. And then I read her book, Trick Mirror, which was just like a huge hit and also was phenomenal. So much of my writing is literally just like direct ripoffs from Gia Tolentino, sorry about that. But I'm like, I'm like literally so obsessed with her. She's also so pretty and she's Asian, which is obviously for me, I, that also just means I get obsessed with them. But anyway, the, her style of writing, I was really inspired by because my favourite type of stuff that she writes about is she takes quite menial cultural things. Like one of my favourites is about sassy mom merch. Mm. Like t-shirts that say, this mom runs on wine and Amazon Prime. And kind of like t-shirts like that, like, that's jokes. And you'd think it could be kind of like a vice, like, the most cringiest t-shirts ever. But she takes it super seriously. And taking something like that and seeing it as a genuine cultural artifact that is full of insights, just, like, flips so many hierarchies and what is taste and what is good taste and things like that. And I loved it. The way that she concluded that article was about the binds of motherhood and how t-shirts like that are a weird mixture of 
satirical comedy and just being lighthearted and funny, but it's also a genuine reflection on the lack of structural support for mothers. Mm, there's a poet called Holly McNish. And she oh, I don't know, but I should write it down. I'm, like, not great with poetry. I think I'm too cynical to, like, really get into lots of poetry. But she's so great. And one of the things she was talking about was all the gin mum content. Yes. Why mum? And she was like, can we just talk about why all mums need to have a gin and tonic in the evening? You think it's all funny, but actually, yeah, it's just, like, it's, it's this kind of funny joke that's resulted from a quite, like, grim structural yeah. issue that's meant that mums are struggling to cope. But we've yeah. made it into this sellable label that's kind of funny and cute. I think, like, the shallowest way you could approach that topic is making fun of it. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen some articles that talk about, like, gin mom and stuff like that as don't glorify alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then n- next is there's exactly that when it's why, but like, like wait, like, record scratch. What's happening to make mothers feel like that? And also yeah. what uh, Gio Tolentino was writing about was also in the context of social media, which was really interesting because I reread it recently. And it's a lot of what I've been reading and looking into about social media and performing authenticity, mm. which is what a theorist called Brooke Aaron Duffy calls the authenticity bind, which is about how social media specifically or kind of online spaces in general ask you for a certain level of honesty and candor, if you want to have any followers. They, they need to see the real you. Mm-hmm. But if it's too real, it's kind of gross and people don't like it. But also, you'll just get completely harassed and abused. Yeah. And it's explicitly gendered as well. Yeah. Sorry, the person I was thinking about, that I feel like is a really good example of that is Chris Teigen. Mm. She's publishes a lot of her life online. I think her life itself is very curated and beautiful. And she has these beautiful children and, you know, beautiful husband, cookbook and stuff. And people love that she's got these... She'll show these cute little photos of her son being a bit naughty or, like, her daughter who might have thrown something on the floor and she's like, oh, no, oops. And it's, like, that level of authenticity, which is really cute. But then she got so much hate when she posted photos of... When she had a miscarriage. Did she and get hate for that? She got a lot of hate for people That's being like, you crazy. shouldn't have, like you shouldn't have put that up. That was too personal. That was and they were framing it in the idea that it was for her benefit, but it wasn't. It was people were like, I don't wanna I don't wanna see yeah. that. Yeah. So it's it's impossible. Chrissy T can go through something horrible and then everyone also feels the right to monitor what parts they think are acceptable to see and share, which is not a new phenomenon for women. No. Like, Gio Tolentino writes really well about social media and identity performance in Mm -hmm. general. The stuff that's come up a lot for me is what she wrote about Instagram face and filters. And the most interesting part for me was how these filters are kind of about... She uses the phrase rootless exoticism. And it's about placing that rootless exoticism onto white faces. Because that is the sexy cool thing. Exactly like you're saying, it's like people like people of colour but they don't really want people of colour there Mm. and they know that having you know Asian eyes or black lips is cool and sexy but they don't like them on those people of the cultures who naturally have them they like them on like a filter with like green eyes and freckles Mm. and Gia Tolentino did a really interesting kind of dissection of that kind of pursuit of an impossible perfection but also about how different cultural things are being cherry-picked and placed onto white women so do you find when you're reading someone like Gia Tolentino and she's 
she talks about these ideas and creates phrases like rootless exoticism. Is there a way that you kind of channel what she's saying for you to say something new? Or do you think you're more influenced just in the kind of way that she does things? I think it's a lot more the way that she approaches things. But in general, I like the way that she talks about things in a very clever, compassionate way for popular culture in general. I really like how she has respect for things. None of it is demeaning and she doesn't really laugh at things. She interrogates it and holds it and takes it seriously. And that's an outlook that I really try to adopt. And she talks about this idea of rootless exoticism, but she doesn't really foreground her own experience. Like she doesn't, it doesn't start with as an Asian woman. She kind of rarely talks about that. And I really try my best to do that a lot. I think things read better. I think they're more convincing if I remove myself from them. Mm -hmm. And I try to see like having a very confusing multi-ethnic or multicultural background as a gift that you can have some insight into things and how complicated things can be. But in my experience, it doesn't work if I make it about me. I have that even like with this podcast. I find myself asking questions that are the same as people, other podcasts that I listen to. Part of me feels like a bit sneaky, but part of me is like, oh, I think it can be more than just sneaking something from someone else. It can actually be a way of bringing something that you love and making sure that you love that in your own work. Yeah, because I think with stuff like that and having people in mind or approaches in mind, it allows you to check yourself. Yeah. Definitely. And if I start getting too cross or start making something about me, I can. it helps me to kind of step back and readjust how I'm approaching something. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's time for us now to move on to your final, your final so. figure of influence. And this is somebody that you know personally. I'm going to hand over to you to tell us about our friend... Camilla. Yes. So my person I know is Camilla Anvar, who is my, the co-creator of Sexy Asians in Your Area. And she is just fabulous. <laughs> we made Sexy Asians together. It was literally the funnest thing ever. The process of it was wild because it was almost a full year of us just meeting for coffee and talking for fucking ages and just talking, 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 talking about everything about what it was like because she's from Uzbekistan and obviously I'm like a quarter Japanese. We both had this thing of not fitting into what is at least like the Western conception of an Asian person or an East Asian person. Yeah. And that's why the film deals with a lot of one of the archetypical roles for Asian people because we were kind of learning and we're forced to form our Asian identity mediated through these simplified cultural forms. And so it was really interesting to just ask her loads and loads and loads of questions because so much of growing up was having no one to speak to about my experience with racial identity. So just a lot of us thinking on your own and then having someone to talk to and common with was so powerful and so fun. And I'm so grateful for Camilla for that reason. And also she's just fabulous. And we had so much fun doing sexiations because we were just... There was so much trust in just having someone else with you and by your side and not judging the things that you're saying or not, it's not going to get angry at you or say, no, you're not. And it's not just going to revert to defence, which was kind of all my experience was about talking about my Asianness. It's really exciting to have a friendship that is really, really valuable in all of those ways you described and to have something to show for it. So you have this great friendship 
And you also have a theatre company and a short film together that encapsulates so much of that. It was so great to be able to point to something tangible. Because that was also the product of so much talking and thinking and also in the process of this happening, the pandemic and all these Mm. horrific um, anti-Asian hate crimes all over the world that was very painful. And the summer as well and Black Lives Matter, it was a lot happening. Um, And it was really... I'm glad we had done so much groundwork about it because we had really clarified what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it. It formed at a, not your friendship, but the theatre company and particularly the Instagram page as well, formed at such an appropriate time. Yeah. To become this platform, this anti-racism platform, but also this thing that was also really celebratory. Yeah. It was really, it was really interesting to discuss with Camilla because as we were saying, this well, I feel like our big theme in our conversation today has been about hybridity, and again, that's really central to East Asian communities because we are both victims of and perpetrators of racism. Because so much, like especially Chinese communities, are one of the least likely to report incidences of hate crimes to the police. Like, because there's this notion of compliance and silence that Asian assimilation is seen to hinge on Mm. so we really wanted to be very open about these issues and speak on them and then alongside that it became really important to say that just because we're experiencing racism as a community doesn't mean that we cannot perpetuate it or we are learning stops there and that became really important we were trying to push that a lot also in that light being in a space like edinburgh which is incredibly white Mm. And having somebody like Hermela, who is Asian and also, like you were saying, has a kind of non-typical to Western people's experience mm-hmm. of being Asian, to have a close friend that you can kind of create like a safe space of being able to work through your ideas with. Yeah, absolutely. Having that. It was yeah. so valuable. But exactly, like being able to have trust with someone, it could help you let go of needing to feel perfect all the time. Mm. And I feel like that's a lot of what I grew up experiencing was that to deflate and to soothe the people that were kept asking me loads of questions or were not happy with the answer I was giving them, everything has to be perfect. And you can't give them an excuse. You have to predict everything that someone's going to say. If you're going to write an article about something that you want people to read, I feel like it has to be perfect, perfect, perfect. And if I'm going to put something out, it has to be perfect, perfect, perfect. I can't give anyone a chance. Mm. And then working with Camilla, it was really inspiring to try to let go of some of that. And exactly a lot of that has to do with being able to bounce something off of someone. Yeah. You don't have to be perfect all the the time. Because it's impossible. It's, it is <laughs> but it's cheesy a horrible ending but that's like i think that goes actually into a lot of what we're saying about hybridity and about mm. being able to exist with multiple identities i say that in inverted commas to have multiple influences in your identity and kind of imperfection is part of that because often those things do yeah that's so true conflict each other And actually to be both one thing and another yeah what a lovely thought there's no way you can exist fully as all of these little blocks and so imperfection is actually central to that and is often something that is attacked no but i that's exactly if you are if you're like a hybrid person that has like a hybrid identity specifically to do with race or gender identity you grow up being told that you're imperfect because you don't fit those binaries 
that people are so used to seeing of self and other or of, you know, the lotus flower or the dragon lady. If you don't fit them, you are told that you're imperfect. And it's so easy Mm. to internalise that. I think, yeah, to embrace (laughs) that imperfection, which means that you don't just exist in a binary way. And that that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Mm. And we should strive for it. Yes. I think that is a really lovely note for us. Yeah, that is that is actually nice now. <laughs> <laughs> um thank you so much, Zelda. That was just like it was so nice to speak to you because it's also been about four hundred. Yeah, it's so nice to speak to you. I'm sorry, it's been a while. But yeah, thank you so much, Zelda. And I can't wait to be reading your articles in the New York Times. And <laughs> the very near future wow thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure i could talk to zelda for hours and her thoughts on the world combined with her deep and luscious voice make her in my opinion a dream podcast guest thank you to her for a great conversation and once again thank you to the shilson sisters for their beautiful music throughout thank you for listening especially if you've come back from listening to a previous episode and if you really liked it feel free to leave us a really nice review See you all again soon.